If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles available for you. The ushers could get those. and We'll also be projecting on the screen, but I think one of the best things is to have your Bible right in front of you and get used to flipping through it and getting to know it, benefiting from it. We're continuing our series uh, entitled Kingdom Living, Learning from the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus brings this wonderful sermon full of truth to us about what life is like in the kingdom when we follow Him, when we are depending on the King and trusting Him for forgiveness in life, looking to Him to lead us. He leads us into a really a radical alternative to the regular ways of the world. He leads us in kingdom living. And so really that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Really radical but wonderful and glorious teaching of what it is to follow the King. Today we're going to look at what he says in chapter 5, verses 31 to 32 about marriage and divorce. And uh, we, we need this teaching in our culture and in our day. And this is, I, I know, a very relevant topic to us. Really, all of Scripture is relevant to us. It's, it's never a problem with the Scripture's relevance. It's sometimes a challenge for us to understand its relevance. But this one we certainly know right off the bat. Uh, there's probably not a, a person in here who's not been affected by divorce in some way uh, and how we need this teaching. In the past 100 years, the divorce rate has uh, gone up about eight times. From 1890 to 1990, the rate went from three, uh, three couples per 1,000 per year to, uh, I think it's about 23 per year. Uh, about 40% of all marriages will end in divorce. Uh, it's a sad reality. It's actually gotten a little better. Recently, uh, the rate peaked in the early 80s, and just a little bit of information, Massachusetts actually is one of the best states for not having divorces. It has one of the lowest divorce rates uh, in the country. But this is, even, even so, it's still a very serious one. It's a problem. And it's more than statistics, isn't it? It's more than just numbers. We know the, the sad reality. We've, many of us have tasted the bitter results of, of divorce. So we need to hear from the Savior on this. We need to hear his truth and be guided in his ways. We need his grace. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask that he would speak to us. We want to hear from him. Uh, And he has instructed us in Scripture that he is a communicating God who loves to speak to his sheep, to his people. So let's ask him to do that. Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth. And Lord, how we need to hear from you. In all things, Lord, we need this. And particularly in this topic, Lord. We need to hear your truth, and we pray you give us ears to hear. Lord, I ask that you would help us uh, to listen and have soft hearts, because, Lord, this is a, a hard topic for us. And because of the, the pain that we've experienced, uh, either directly or indirectly from this, sometimes, Lord, we, we can block out hearing you on this and not giving you the chance to speak the whole truth to us. So help us, Lord, to listen. And help me, Lord, to serve you, Lord. Protect me from saying anything that's not of you. And I could serve you. And we thank you for your love and your grace that covers us. Thank you for your blood shed for us, that we're forgiven. And, uh, and you're here with us. So speak, Lord, we pray. Teach us and be glorified in it as we, you lead us in truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Jesus is 
speaking in this little section on, really on marriage and on adultery. He's addressing the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments, which says, do not commit adultery. And last week we talked about one way that we disobey that commandment and looking to lust. And he talked about that earlier. And then this little section here, two verses, he talks about divorce and how it relates to this uh, seventh commandment. And so he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. Jesus comes with this teaching in Matthew 5, very directly, right after the topic of divorce. And in many ways, it's a hard-hitting, hard-hitting two verses. It's a knockout punch, really. Uh, and we want to learn from it. And look at what our Savior teaches us about this from Matthew 5, 31-32, God's Word. As he does in other sections in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts by saying, it, you have heard it said, or it was said. And he says in this one, it was also said. And we've learned that when he does that, he's addressing the common understanding of Scripture that people had. Uh, the common teaching that they had heard. So he's saying to them, it, it has also been said, if anyone wants to, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was the common teaching on divorce. Divorce is simply, if you want to get divorced, you just need to do the certificate, and that's how you do it. That's, that's the truth about divorce. That was what they were taught. And Jesus comes against that very strongly, saying, no, but I say to you something very different. Now, it wasn't that that quote wasn't true. Actually, that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce is right from Scripture. But it was the interpretation, the application of that truth that was incorrect, that he corrects. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. It's meant to be hard-hitting. He comes against the common understanding of divorce, that it was easy to be divorced. He says, no, guys. To the contrary, if you are flippant in divorce, you are actually disobeying the seventh commandment. It's a wake-up call. These two verses are a wake-up call Jesus brings to us. And brings not only to his culture in that day, but brings to our culture and our day. For we have much the same perspective as a culture that they had in that time. He quotes from Deuteronomy 24, the, the first section. He quotes the teaching from that. And if we could put that verse up. Deuteronomy 24. And in this section of Scripture, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy literally means the, the second law, the second giving of the law. And it, was a, it is a book uh, that is derived from Moses' teaching. It's God's Word where, where Moses is bringing the, the law once again to Israel. They've, they've been rescued from Egypt. They've been called to God, to walk with God, and they've wandered in the wilderness for the purpose of discipline, and now they're getting ready to go into the land. And so God has Moses give an instruction of the law again to them, that they might walk in God's ways. God, God loves his people, and he was gracious to them, and he calls them to himself. To be God's people is to be a people of his presence to have him dwell with us, to relate to him, and in that, to walk in his holy ways, to shine for him. So the law of God is instruction in his ways. It's a call to live life in him and to shine forth to the world 
what it is to belong to God. And so that's what Deuteronomy is about. And this particular instruction in chapter 24 goes as follows. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in, in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. That's a lot of information real quick, but did you catch the, the, the drift of the passage? Is God instructing people on how to do divorce? Or here's what you do. You want to get divorced, just get a certificate? Or is there another purpose to that passage? The passage is really about if there is a divorce and there is a remarriage, you can't, if that second marriage dissolves, go back to the first. This isn't God's way. God's wanting to bring controls to wanton divorce. He doesn't want them just to, Quickly get divorced, go to this one, and then go back to the other one. No, 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 you can't do it. You can't have it that way. That's what God's saying in this passage. This is not to be a quick and easy thing. And yet they had taken the first verse where it says, "If, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand. Moses, and God through Moses, is reporting on how the procedure occurs. It's not a prescription. It's not saying, you want a divorce, just get a certificate, and you're good to go. But that's how they understood it. And that was the common teaching of the day. Guys, what divorce is about? It's about getting that certificate. Then you're good to go. That's not the point. And that's why Jesus comes after that so firmly. And hard. He says, guys, you know, you think this is what divorce is about? You know, if, you, if you're unhappy in marriage, you get a certificate. You're good to go. No, if you do that, you are violating the seventh commandment. You are causing your spouse to commit adultery because that sort of divorce is not legitimate in God's eyes. And if you play that game, you are actually promoting disobedience to God and his intentions for marriage. That is the point Christ is making. He's bringing correction to the understanding of Deuteronomy 24. It's not a passage about how to get a divorce. Their approach to divorce was entirely wrong-headed. They entirely missed the point of divorce. And it was more about loopholes rather than obedience. It was more about finding that loophole in Scripture that lets me get out of marriage than obedience to God and His ways. That's what was going on. Does that sound familiar? Would that not characterize our culture in many ways, our approach to divorce? It's all about, do you have grounds for divorce? Now, we're going to talk about in a little bit the grounds, and there are allowances for that. and That that is made in Scripture. But that's not the point. That's not why it's in Scripture. God's thoughts on divorce is, I hate divorce. It's horrible. It's not my will. My will is marriage. My will is a healthy marriage. That's my will. That's God's teaching on divorce. It's not about how to get a divorce, but how to have a marriage. And if our orientation 
towards marriage is how do I get, how do I have grounds for divorce? Then we are missing God's heart for marriage. It's not about loopholes. It's about obedience. But isn't it sad? Don't we do that? When God gives us a command, we often look at that command and we think about loopholes. How can I get away with not doing this? Is there a way for me to find a way to not quite do this? We do that all the time, and maybe you're not convinced. Let me give you some illustrations. I teach a Latin class of sixth graders, and it's really interesting to do that. I'm learning. I love teaching. I love, I love the kids. But one thing that I'm struggling with is classroom management. I've never, well, I have taught classrooms before, but they're were, they were high school age, a little different. Sixth graders are full of energy. And one of the things that's a challenge for me is classroom management. And so I'll, we'll start off the day and I'll say, hey, guys, put your stuff away. Take your Latin books out. Let's read some Latin. And they, they enjoy that more or less, to read Latin. And what will happen is, is the kids will kind of put their stuff away, half-hearted, and, and they'll kind of take their Latin books out slowly, and they'll leave things on their desks, you know. And uh, So sometimes there'll be some doodle paper or special pens and pencils or, or like a bobblehead doll or something like that they'll have brought, and they'll put it on their, their desk. And, and it's interesting. It, it just seems, I don't think they're doing it consciously, and I remember I used to do the same, even, even worse, but they test the limits. Mr. Buckley's asking us to take our Latin books out, put our stuff away, but how much can I get away with? In this, can I just kind of take my time in taking my book out and not put all my stuff away? And, and it goes on all the time, and I'm having to learn how to deal with that. Have you guys ever noticed that sort of thing? Have you ever taught a class or seen that in yourself? We, we look for how much we can get away. We look for, for, for what we can get away with. When, when someone says, you know, these are the boundaries. This is, this is the boundary. If, it, you know, we, we, we don't. Look to enjoy what's inside. It's kind of like wild animals put in a corral, right? You put a wild animals in the corral. Where do they go? They immediately go for the fence. How far, you know, can they press? Can they go to the limits? And they're always pressing. We had a dog like that once. Uh, she was always looking for a way to get out of the yard. Rather than enjoying the yard, she was always at the perimeter. And that's what we're like by nature. We want to we want to press ourselves up. How how can I get away with this? How far can I go? Rather than saying. What is the purpose of the command? Mr. Buckley wants us to read Latin. So I'm going to take my book out, and I'm going to have a great time reading Latin. I'm going to give my whole heart to this. I'm going to put my stuff away. And I, mean, I really don't care if there's bobbleheads on the desk or not. It doesn't matter to me. My, my desire is that they enjoy Latin, but these things are distractions, and they go on. That's how we are often with God's commands. And we can talk about the speed limit. That's another illustration, right? We're always pressing on that. There's just so many things that we live like that. And that's what's going on in a more serious and sober way here with divorce. God says, be fruitful, multiply, be married, walk in my ways. And we look for loopholes. We look for an out. How can I get a divorce? When things get hard, that's where we go. How can I press the limit? How can I get out of this thing? Rather than pressing in to obey. We are often at times more interested as, as a culture in how to get out of a marriage than how to see a marriage rescued. God's heart is to rescue marriage, to work through marriages. 
Divorce is only the brutal extreme option. It's only to be the very last and horrible option. Divorce is not God's will. God allows it, and God can work through it, and God can redeem. So if you've been through a divorce, this message is not meant to tear into your wound and open it up. God is a God of redemption and mercy. But his heart is not for divorce. Divorce is the final and horrible extreme option. Divorce is like an amputation. When somebody is injured, you if they injure a limb seriously, the doctors do all they can to restore that limb, to bring it back to use. It's only when that limb is so damaged beyond repair in every way, and only if that limb is going to kill the rest of the body, do they amputate. So you don't get a cut on your finger and say, oh, okay, i got to amputate my finger, going to cut my arm off now, there's a cut here. No, you seek for healing for that cut. It's only the very last option. Only the brutal extreme. It's like amputation. It's only when things are beyond hope that there is to be divorce. We are never to take a quick and casual attitude towards divorce. Many in Jesus' day did. In the passage in Deuteronomy 24, if you could put that back up, verse 1. It speaks of the situation where a man takes a wife and marries her and she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. It speaks of the situation where there's something going on in a marriage that the man, and and this would go the other way, the woman towards the man, finds some indecency in the, the spouse and writes a certificate of divorce. In Jesus' day, there was... The majority view was that that word indecency and finding favor could mean anything. That if you find some indecency in your spouse, if, if there's just something about your spouse you're not happy with, maybe your, your wife's not a good cook. Maybe your husband is a bit of a, an oaf and he's not very sensitive, forgets your anniversary year after year, doesn't write you cards. If there's something that you're not happy with, if there's some indecency, it's permissible to be divorced. They interpreted that word indecency as really anything that you're not happy with. So if you're incompatible, if you're no longer in love together, if you no longer find the person attractive, it was permissible to get a divorce. And that was the teaching of the day. Uh, That was the majority teaching, that that indecency could mean anything. And Jesus comes against that. And I would say that in many ways today, maybe not to that extreme, thank God, that is the view as well. If you are not happy, it's okay to get a divorce. And Jesus is saying, no, not at all. That if someone seeks divorce for this way, they, for this reason, they are actually committing adultery. That, it really comes hard against the culture of the day. He comes really firm. Guys, If you think you're doing okay on that, let me tell you what you're doing. You're committing adultery. And you're causing your spouse to commit adultery because you're divorcing for a reason that's not legitimate. You're you're severing the marriage. And then that person, particularly in the culture of the day, for a woman, you you needed to be married in that culture. So you're, you're causing your spouse 
to commit adultery because you've divorced for the wrong reason, released them, and now they're going to get remarried, and that's, it wasn't a legitimate divorce, so you're, you're causing adultery, and you're causing the person who marries them to commit adultery in God's eyes. Now, there's a lot of side discussions we could have as we talk through this. In our culture, I'm aware that there are those who have been divorced for reasons that are not biblically legitimate, but it's water under the bridge, and they've been remarried. And we would recognize that marriage as legitimate. Once you're remarried, that marriage is legitimate. You don't dissolve that marriage. There's forgiveness and you move on, but you've made a covenant with a new spouse, and that covenant holds. And if you have questions on that, we can talk about it afterwards. But nevertheless, when there's not a legitimate reason for divorce and divorce is is, uh, worked out, you are committing adultery because you are you are coming against God's heart and purposes for marriage. So that's God's heart in regards to this. God isn't interested in the loophole. God wants us to to have healthy marriages that that seek Him and depend on Him and and are faithful. It's not always easy as well. I don't mean to say that. It's it's not that we're called to do it. Just do it. No, there's difficulty in and, and Scripture recognizes that. I recognize that, that, that marriage can be a challenging thing. And, and we could have a whole other message about that, uh, about how to, how to pursue a healthy marriage. We'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, I don't have time to do a whole message on it. But uh, a book that is an excellent book that I recommend, and, and, uh, and there are a lot of good books on marriage. I, I might be biased because my friend wrote this, but I think this is the best book on marriage I've ever seen, called When Sinners Say I Do. And it's much about how to walk together in marriage and to grow your marriage as sinners dependent on Christ, fulfilling God's uh, desire for marriage. So Jesus comes, and with this teaching, he comes against this understanding and saying this violates the heart of God. Now, he does make allowance for divorce. And that word in Deuteronomy 24, it says indecency, if if the spouse finds some indecency and gets divorced. That word for indecency doesn't mean she burnt the toast or that he forgot to give the anniversary card. It means serious sexual immorality. That in the case where there is serious sexual immorality, divorce is permitted. And we have to be careful even with that. Because our whole loophole mentality is, hey, found the allowance I'm good to go. We're ending this thing. I'm moving on. That's still not God's heart. It's allowed, but Jesus has some things to teach about that, qualifying even that allowance. So let's look in Matthew 19, where Jesus is talking some more about this very topic. What's going on in Matthew 19? You can put that verse up, Matthew 19. What's going on in this passage is Jesus is having a discussion. People are testing him on it. And he says in Matthew 19... As he's asked about this, let me flip to that. He responds to the Pharisees who are testing him on it. And he says the same thing as he does in Matthew chapter 5, but he adds a little more detail that's instructive. They they ask him uh, in verse 8, verse 7, they say, Why then? Jesus brings the same teaching as we just went over. And then they say to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
That's the Pharisees' question. By the way, Moses did not command them. It was an allowance. But anyhow, uh, Jesus doesn't go after that. What he says is, uh, in verse 8, is revealing. You have that up there? He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. There is an allowance for divorce when there is an indecency. But even that allowance is given not as God's first choice, but because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, when that indecency is so serious that either it's, there's no repentance for it on the part of the person who committed the indecency, so only when there's hard-heartedness that says, no, I don't want to give up this affair, I'm going to continue in it. Or if the hard-heartedness is on the, the offended spouse's part, that says, you know what, you have wounded me so deeply, I can never forgive you and never forget what you did. And I don't want anything to do with this marriage anymore. When there's that hard-heartedness, it's allowed. But that is a sad, sad solution, is it not? God has something much better than that. It is not the best choice. It's granted for hard-heartedness. And sadly, at times, I've seen this. And you know what? It's not always the hard-heartedness of the unrepentant Spouse, certainly if that situation is going on, yeah, the divorce is probably the right alternative. If the person is unrepentant and pursuing the affair and not saying no over time, that might be what has to happen, probably should happen. But probably more often than not, it's the other way around. It's the offended spouse's heart who's hard. It's the offended spouse who feels so bitter about what went on that they're not forgiving the person, and then because of their hard-heartedness and their sin. Now, that's not to say there isn't real sin and hurt against that person. In no way am I saying that. God, God cares for us in that. But if we don't receive His mercy and grace towards us, we don't receive His power to heal us, and we continue to hold on to offense in bitterness, then we are sinning. And we are the ones with the hard heart. And it is because of our sin at that point that the marriage is dissolved. So yes, there is this allowance, but it's only for hard-heartedness. Never to be the first option. Always to be the last. The very last and tragic option. The amputation that only should occur when there's nothing else to do to save the marriage. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this as well, and he, I think, takes the same allowance and applies it to desertion as well. When a spouse leaves, it's essentially adultery in that day, particularly if they left, they're, they're leaving to go find another spouse. So desertion would be another one that is a legitimate grounds, but never, never the first and immediate option, always the tragic last option. Those are their allowances. There's no allowances for those other trivial things. And even in those allowances, it doesn't mean that should happen. It's only the very last tragic option when there's hard-heartedness. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a truth in all this that I think we have to keep at the center. 
The reason that Jesus says these things is not because God is mean, not because he's merely strict, not because he's a killjoy and he wants to keep you in a miserable marriage. The reason is that God has something better than divorce. God has something better, more glorious, more fulfilling than divorce. God hates divorce because he's good and he loves us. God hates divorce because he wants to manifest his glory in and through our marriages and through families. God has something better for us than this. And that's why he's opposed to this. If we could put up Matthew 19 again. When he speaks to the Pharisees, he talks about the reason why we don't pursue divorce only as a last resort. They ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh since they are no longer two, but one flesh. But what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God made marriage. God made male and female. You know, he didn't have to do it that way. He could have had another plan. I don't know. He could have made us unisex, all one sex. And it gets kind of weird when you think about that. I don't know how that would work. But all one sex and kind of like we cross-pollinate or you just kind of, maybe you'd be like an amoeba, you'd split in half, you know, and that would be kind of weird. I don't know. I don't know. But he could have done it differently. It could have been... That would be really weird, but it could have been amoebas and all that. I don't like to think about that. But anyhow, <laughs> he, he chose to make us male and female. It's part of his plan. His plans are good. And in his genius, he said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them different. And I'm going to make them dependent on one another. I'm going to call many probably most males and females, not all. Scripture makes provision for singleness. It's a glorious state as well. But I'm going to call many people, I'm going to call them together. And I'm going to join them together. And the two will become one. And, and, and you think about it, mathematics, usually one plus one equals two. And God's mathematics for marriage, one plus one equals one. He joins them together. And he makes them one. And that's, that's an amazing mystery. Of the Lord. Marriage is more than than economic and relational convenience. It's more than having children and nurturing children. It's more than satisfying sexual drive and so forth. It is about God making the two one. Making a new creation in a sense out of a male and a female, a man and a woman who covenant in marriage together. And it says here that God has joined them together. This isn't our idea. And for those of us who are married, you are married and joined together not merely because you decided to get married. When you covenanted together in marriage and stood before the Lord, perhaps before a pastor or justice of the peace, and perhaps in the witness of family and friends, there was someone else present there who is working something miraculous. God himself 
officiates and presides over weddings and marriages. And God himself joins the two together. It's his idea. It's his plan. It's for his purposes and our joy in him. And so what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Divorce is an affront to God who joins the two and makes them one. And that's the teaching Jesus brings. This is God's plan. This is God's way to bring blessing. This is God's creation. If you went to see the Mona Lisa and stood in front of it, you wouldn't take out a razor knife and start cutting and slashing the Mona Lisa, would you? The only people who would do that would be someone who doesn't appreciate its beauty, its uniqueness. Probably someone who doesn't know Leonardo da Vinci and all that he did and the painting and all his art and, and uh, scientific discoveries. Probably only somebody who is so consumed by some darkness that they've lost sight of beauty and the beauty of the Mona Lisa and concern for others, right? That's the only sort of person who would take out a razor knife and start slashing the Mona Lisa. Marriage is more glorious than the Mona Lisa. And it is God's creation. It is God's work of art. And for us to take the razor knife out and start slashing is a greater offense and a greater vandalism than to slash the Mona Lisa. What God has joined together, let no man separate only as a final and tragic last resort. This is a glorious thing God makes. It's his idea from the beginning. And he has great purpose in it. Let us not vandalize marriage. Let us pursue God's purposes and blessings in marriage. There's no way in a a message, a short message, to cover all the beauty of marriage. Let me just quickly run through a few things as we close. The different blessings from God, the purposes of God in marriage. We have some verses to put up. I really don't have time to go through all of Scripture, but there is so much godly purpose in marriage. One of the ones at the top, the one I would put at the top, from Ephesians chapter 5, is the glory of God and a model of the gospel. Marriage is probably one of the, the most, if not the most, I think it's the most in many cases, important context for God to put the reality of his life the reality of grace, the reality of Christ crucified and risen, and the power it makes available to us on display. There's probably no better context, there's no better display case for the wonder of the gospel than marriage. And God's desire for marriage is to put the power of the gospel on display. Because we know how hard marriage can be. The reality is we are sinners, and we are very selfish. And we come into marriage as selfish sinners. And we need redemption. We need rescue. We need forgiveness from God. We need power from God to to be different. And we can look okay on the outside with people we don't know real well, but we can't really get away with stuff with our spouse, can we? Anyone here get away with stuff with their spouse? Ever? Maybe once in a while? For those of you who are married. Uh, 
No. And we don't like that, do we? And that's one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable often in marriage is because they know us. They read us probably better than ourselves. I think after you've been married a while, you are better at reading your spouse than your spouse is at reading himself or herself often. Be careful with that one <laughs> because we can make judgments when we don't know what's going on. But that's for good because that forces us to depend on Christ. Because when we sin and we do something and our spouse is offended, it, it gets to our heart more than any other relationship. And it can hurt. And we can feel really bad about ourselves. And we can feel very proud. And there can be things that come out in our marriage that we are very surprised at. Wow, I never knew I was, could be so terrible. Now, left to itself, that's a bad thing. But it is meant to be a good thing. Because it's at that point that you recognize, you know what, I'm worse than I thought I was. And I need a Savior more powerful than I knew He was. And He is more powerful. And His forgiveness is stronger and deeper than you think. And it's at those moments when you recognize that and you you begin to understand and appreciate the wonder of forgiveness and the wonder of His power to give us the ability to die to self and to live to love Him, to depend on Him, to love Him, and love others. That the Gospel begins to be put on display in a way that's more dramatic and convincing and fruitful than most other contexts. So God has this wonderful, glorious purpose in marriage of redemption and putting it on display. Boy, if He can change me in my marriage in the ways that I am, then He can do anything. That's what we experience and I've experienced. I thought I was a good guy until I got married. I started to realize what a jerk I am. And I get reminded of that again and again and again. And you guys might think I'm a good guy. But my marriage reveals that often I'm not. I can be just incredibly selfish. And you know what? It's so subtle, too. Like, those who, well, those other than my wife probably wouldn't pick up on some of the the nuances of tone of voice that I have sometimes. My wife knows exactly when there's something going on in my tone of voice. I can sound just as pleasant to others on the outside, but it's a little bit... And I'm not... My, uh, my frequency range of emotion is not real big. Now, some people you can read better. Mine's like this. So, but it's those little nuances that she'll pick up on, and I can't get away with it. And that's a good thing. And she'll go after that. And that's a good thing. So God's purpose in marriage is for our good and His glory to put the gospel on display. That's what Ephesians 5 is calling us to. Husbands, you're to love your wife like Christ loves the church. Whoa, that is a huge tall order, but that is His desire. Wives, you are to come and follow your husband and love them and support them like the church follows Christ. That is an amazing tall order. And it's, by the way, guys, it's not because you're great. It's because that's the call. And I think it's the, that's the harder call. We can have another message on that. But anyhow, that, that's a tall order. But God is glorified in that. Other purposes we can follow uh, real quickly. Uh, the blessing of marriage is for intimate, loving companionship. That's part of God's design. To have a friend that's so close and to love each other, to know each other at that level. God, good for man to be alone. God makes us male and female for for many of us, brings us together in marriage. He can meet us with loving companionship apart from marriage. Singleness is a glorious state, but it is a, a major, a common means for him to minister to us in intimate, loving companionship. 
Genesis 2 speaks of that elsewhere. Proverbs 18, Malachi, it's all through Scripture. For mutual provision. There are the economic and physical benefits of marriage. We provide for our family and our spouse, and, and we can look at many verses. First Timothy speaks of, a, of a, particularly a husband's responsibility to provide for his family. Proverbs 31, we see the woman providing for the home. There's lots of examples. For the blessing and nurture of children, great blessing to have children when he grants them. God wants to bless families. He loves families. He delights in children. We are delighted to, to have so many children amongst us. They are a blessing from God. God wants to raise up godly offspring for himself. Sexual enjoyment, that is part of the blessing of marriage. And there's a lot of verses on that, and we won't go into it, so singles, don't worry. Uh, we won't talk about that right now. But Proverbs 5, I think, is there. Can you put that up? Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. A call to enjoy the blessing of marriage. There's many other purposes in that. And we're not, I'm not going to exegete that passage, so don't worry about it, guys. It's a great one, though, about enjoying sex and marriage. There's many other godly purposes. Marriage is meant to be an amazing blessing and to work all these things. It is for our good and God's glory. And God's heart for marriage is to, is to work these things. It's not always easy. And if we misunderstand his purposes and are looking for loopholes in divorce, we've missed the point, and that's what Jesus is after. That's what he wants, if the bank could come up as we close. He's coming hard because he doesn't want us to miss the point. And if you are at the point where you're struggling in a marriage and divorce is coming to your mind, I would love to talk with you because God's desire for you is something better. It's only the very last and tragic alternative. Also, if you've been through a divorce and you have questions, I would love to talk to you as well. There's healing. God, God is a gracious God who meets us and redeems us. And he can heal those things that we've been through, the sins that we've committed and have been committed against us as we look to him. Marriage calls us to desperately depend on God. Why does he arrange it that way? Because the reality is we Desperately need God. And so if you are at that place of weakness in your marriage, that's a good thing. And that's very normal. Matter of fact, if you aren't at that place of weakness in marriage, I'd like to talk with you because you probably have some things to work on in your marriage. You're not looking at yourself or your marriage uh, in the fullness of God's counsel. God wants us to be desperately dependent on him because he wants to meet us. He wants to bless us and work in us and work through us and show to us and those around us that he's alive and he does wonders. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for marriage. Thank you for the blessing that it is and all that you mean it to be for us. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and the healing that you bring to for those of us who have been through divorces and have perhaps not obeyed you in your heart for marriage, forgive us. And Lord, lead us in your glorious ways. We want to be a people who pursue your wonderful, glorious purposes for marriage. Thank you, Jesus, for this teaching. We pray these things in Christ's name.